A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Crash MotoGP podcast. My name is Harry Benjamin. It's episode six. And on the show this week, we look back on an action-packed, entertaining and A bit of a bizarre MotoGP race in Spain. The first event to see fans return to the stands. And it was all looking set from the outset, I think, for a lot of people. There was going to be a Fabio Quartararo win. But it turned out to be anything but a warning, I think, to all of us. Predict MotoGP if you dare. Because it was Miguel Oliveira who took the win ahead of Joan Zarco. And Jack Miller rounded out the podium. But it was far from simple to discuss it all with me, of course, Former rider, British champion and commentator Keith Ewan and Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren. Lots to discuss as ever, guys. Let's dive straight in uh, with our race winner. And I mean, who'd have thought that? I think we all kind of said last week, yeah, maybe a podium. But to take the win and do it convincingly, Miguel Oliveira, that KTM bike, Keith, it's got a life for him in the last couple of races, isn't it? Yeah, it's not... um... I mean, there's, there's been quite a lot reported about the KTM changes. Obviously, they've made some chassis changes, which have obviously worked, and, and, and they're getting what they want to get. And it's kind of a lot of people scratch their head with these jobs because, I mean, they've got apparently a little bit more flex but still get the grip coming out of corner, so on and so forth. But I think the thing that's confusing most people, including me, I've got to say, because I'm not that smart, as you already know. Um, even Aries found me out on that one, Pete. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of this fuel change that they've made, they've got a different manufacturer of fuel that they're using as well, which is obviously allowing them to do something slightly different as far as the way that the thing is fueled. Um, and it does make a difference. Now, getting to the bottom of the specification of a, of a fuel type, um, even Simon Crafar, Dorna's tech man on the site, who's been used to all of this stuff throughout his career, has had a real job trying to work out exactly where the differences are and what's going to be allowed. I think we touched on it last time when we spoke about it, the, the fueling. I'm... I'm always a bit sceptical because obviously it's got a specification. It's got to be, it's got to hit all the markers chemically. Um, you can't just put something better in over and above everybody else. It's got to work within the specifications that's given by by the tech people at uh, Trackside. Um, but it's obviously enabled KTM. I mean, it looks fast. The bike does. It's obviously working really well. It's obviously working in, again, a combination with this new chassis. Everything you do when you improve one thing, you've got to find another 10 things that work with it. It's not just you get more horsepower because more horsepower means the bike handles differently or worse even in a lot of cases. It's always been Honda's case. We talked about that last time out as well with the electronics that control the Honda. When they went to the spec electronics, that's when they had a load more aggravation because they couldn't manage the the, the, the style of, of delivery that the, the Honda has. So with, with the KTM, these combinations, I mean – it's no rocket science. The kid's gone good since they made the changes. Um, add them up. Yeah, Pete, I mean, if he carries on like this, do you think, well, Oliveira, do you think he'll be up there consistently now? You've got to believe so. I mean, Oliveira is a very cool-headed guy and, you know, he didn't want to make any assumptions, but it's two races now, two different tracks where, you know, these changes, as Keith is mentioning there, that they've clearly worked and they've clearly taken a step forward. Perhaps we also need to mention that the KTM is the only steel tre- trellis frame on the grid. And what that allows them to do, it, it seems, is to make changes really quickly. You know, you can make a new chassis much quicker than you can if you make it out of the aluminium. And so maybe that's part of it. I mean, we all remember when they first came in, everyone was criticizing them. You'll never win in MotoGP with that. You know, it's a single tire rule. You've got to build the chassis around the tires. Everyone else is using the aluminium twin spire frame. You know, you should do that. But they stuck to it because they said, look, it's not about what the material is it's about what the numbers are you know it's about you deciding what numbers i need to flex this way that way and making the frame do that 
And so they've, they've been able, you know, maybe that's been a factor in this quick turnaround that they've been able to do from these early race problems with the tyres that, that Keith has mentioned in the earlier episodes. They've now got the frame working with the tyres at least two different tracks. It's not just Oliveira. Binder's going well as well. So we look, it's all looking good for them, yeah. Although I've got to say that Binder perhaps hasn't gone as good as you might have expected with the changes. Um, but sticking with the chassis thing at the moment, it's a lot easier to cut a tube out of something than it is to do an aluminium extrusion. And, and the amount of work you've got to do to change a, a, a normal style chassis, well, I'll call it normal style, it's, you know, it is what it is. But you know, to, to have the technology, to be able to work out exactly what you've got to do to make these things work. I mean, this is a dark art. This is something that I'm so impressed with KTM, the way that they've, they've you know, they, they've folded their Moto2 uh, campaign it, it, to move all their techs, all their all their resources behind the KTM MotoGP bike to make sure that they got that right, and it's paying dividends. It's working out now. Oliveira seems to have got it sorted out with the new one. I was slightly surprised at Binder. Binder, he certainly wasn't lacking any aggression in that race. Every time I saw what he was up to, so um, and normally when when you've got a track like Catalonia, which wrecks tires and yet is slippery, I know it's a it's a combination you don't usually expect. Normally, when it's slippery, you, you know, tyres last fairly well. But but with this track, as indeed the next one we're going to, actually, when you get to, to Saxon Ring, you've got like 30 seconds on the left-hand side of the tyre. We'll wait and see who works works around there. Um, but the point being is, is that somehow that KTM, did you see the consistency of Oliveira's time? I, cu- I couldn't believe it. When they put that big, long list up in the tower on the side of the screen, you just look at it and you think, Hang on a minute. It's like a cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. I've never seen such consistency through the race. It was only the last two or three laps that, that he started to sort of just slip a little bit from that, what was it, 40.4, 40.6, 40.2, whatever it was. Unbelievable consistency. I mean, when you come back in and you look at that as a rider, as a team, you go, ha, always doing his job. When you used to see Maverick Vinales, and Maverick Vinales, he'd start off... He'd lose the race in the first three or four laps, five laps, and then all of a sudden, towards the end of the race, he'd do his fastest lap right at the end of the race. And you think, hang on a second, that's not the way around. You need to have some more consistency in there. Something you need to use your tire up. You should have really virtually no tire left at the end of the race. That's the perfect scenario. You've had all the goodness out of it right to the very end. You've judged it to perfection, and Oliveira did. Did you guys think that maybe when um, uh, Corsair obviously starting from pole, I think everybody kind of expected he would pretty much run away with it. But Oliveira stuck with him and got him into the first corner. So it wasn't like Oliveira had to he had to fight for it because then Corsair came back to him. But I thought that Corsair might have been playing a bit of a you know the long game, just sort of sit behind him, sit behind him. But actually, was it the other way around? Was it Oliveira actually? He seemed to have the more the more confident bike in the end. How many times do we see this? in motorbike racing that from day to day the track and the conditions seemed to change it was a situation where it was only a few degrees different i think in track temperature than what they'd run already but the fact of the matter was was that quattararo didn't look like quattararo yeah he looked smooth and all the rest of it but he was nowhere near as fast on average over the race as he was predicting to be from what we've seen already this week Oliveira stepped up quattararo went the other way and we got what we got um you know uh, you can never really answer it. It's, it's a strange thing. If you're sat on site, if you're in a team, and then you can get these these kind of indications, but but none of them will give them to you. A press conference, the amount of Zoom calls, whatever you're doing, they're never going to tell you where the problem was. Poor old Pete, he's, he's, under, he's like a, you know, he gets whipped by all these people trying to trying to get to the bottom of these questions, and uh, and and they avoid it like the plague. Um, and it's but. But they know there, there are reasons they can they can fight. They know what those reasons are. They have got the data. They will be working through everything. But Quattararo's below par. Oliveira stepped up. Just to, just to add to that, Keith, and Fabio agreed with you. And not only that, he thought that something happened to all of the Yamahas on Sunday. He thought he actually said he thought Morbidelli was looking really good. And Morbidelli was, what, ninth? You know, all of the Yamahas seemed to have a tougher race than they were expecting. And, you know, and a few of them said, was it the right choice to go with the hard rear tyre? But it had worked well when they tried it on the Saturday and everything else. As you say, a few degrees different, everything changed. And it seemed like, in general, the Yamahas were the ones to lose. Can't even blame rain because um, they, they had a few spots of it this morning uh, and that was it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't like the, the rain will have washed the track away and, and made it green. It, it, the track was in pretty good order all the way through. So 
I don't know. It's one of them ones where the next couple of days, you know, people will be working out. I mean, uh, there's a bit of testing going on there, isn't there, on Monday as well. So I think Sylvain Gintoli is uh, putting his microphone down and actually doing some work um, tomorrow for Suzuki. They'll be trying to work their way through it as well. Um, Going to be a lot of head scratching, you know, mid-season where we are at the moment. You know, it's uh, it's not over. I mean, how many times do we see this? We get to the middle middle of the season and all of a sudden the, the whole year switches. And that mid-season break you get, championships can be lost uh, once we come back from this, uh, when we get into the mid-season break. It's going to be really interesting to see whether who can keep the momentum going in the second half of the year, if we have a second half of the year, of course. Well, you say head-scratching. I think a lot of people will be doing that. Uh, let's talk about the Fabio Quartararo incident i don't think i've ever seen anything like it you may have done but then feel free to to explain it to me but it, it's what looked like his overalls just sort of came undone or they he appeared on screen the zip was all the way down he get, got rid of his uh protective chest plate rode with the rest of his race with the zip down and that seemed incredibly dangerous reckless how did it happen why did it happen i've never seen anything like it why was he not black flag because surely that is a dangerous thing to do it's a clothing malfunction when you get them on stage at a pop concert or something it's all quite amusing for us and sometimes more entertaining but uh he's got a good old bloody chest on him hasn't he well there'll be a lot of people that would have been quite quite enjoying that but uh the problem is it's only a zip at the end of the day, it's a zip. Um, it obviously wasn't. It wasn't broken. Uh, the first first thought you had, maybe he popped his airbag. Maybe what well, you got to remember that zip <laughs> is strong because it puts up with an airbag that explodes underneath it. When he when the algorithms pop the airbag, it fires up an airbag all the way around his shoulders and and some around the hips as well. So that zip doesn't get pulled apart. It's not. It's not a weak zip. It's a. It's, a, it's made it's hellishly durable. Um, but I've had it before. If you've not got it right, you've not got your little Velcro thing over the top of the... It can, for some reason or another, undo. It can slide down on its own accord. You know, you're talking 200-mile-an-hour motorbikes. There's a fair bit of wind going on around them. There's a fair bit going... going, And, and, and it's something that can be, I suppose, unzipped. And once it's unzipped, you know, it's like anything else. You try bloody doing a zip back up when you're, when you're travelling at that kind of rate of knots. Um, his, his chest pad that he, he had to throw out like a frisbee to get rid of it. I'm surprised no one said anything about that yet. Actually, chucking that out onto the track as well is, is another item of danger. For me, I'm, I'm with the majority on this one. As a, and I, I don't, as you know, I don't usually shy away from a, anything controversial. But it, 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 he should have been black flagged. I mean, it was a thousand percent. Um, there isn't anything strictly in the rules, although it says that you must be zipped up accordingly all your equipment must be done up accordingly da 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 but i couldn't find anything in the rule book that says that there's a specific penalty for 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 riding around with your zip undone um but the fact is it's just incredibly dangerous so there will be a rule that covers the fact under safety um that will be there the the wonderful thing about mogp rule book it's not that thick it's not like a formula one rule book which is like several volumes it is a fairly thin item that, that gives autonomy to stewards and and race control to be able to do within certain parameters pretty much what they want to do. Um, of course, it all got combined with that little run on he had at turn one, which meant that he went off the track. He didn't give... I never understand how bloody riders are supposed to count to one. I mean, you, so you run off the track and you've got to give back a second. What the frig is a second to a rider when you're riding at that kind of pace? And you got, you're trying to hold on to a, a, mic, a bike that's trying to bloody throw you off. You've got your zip undone you know, down to your middle. I mean, it's just impossible for him to do it. But the rule is there. It's a virtual sand trap. It's a virtual gravel trap. That's what it's supposed to be. So the time penalty is to to give you a penalty as if you had run onto gravel or grass. That's the idea of it. So he should have given up a second, you know, which isn't much at the end of the day. In the end, he copped three seconds for only giving up 0.7 of one. Um, and it cost him. But my money, he's bloody lucky. He's lucky he wasn't black flagged. He should have been black flagged. It was a safety issue. Fall over at 200 mile an hour without the right protective gear on and you are going to be absolutely skinned. I, I was watching it with my hands over my eyes at one point, Pete, because I just that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, he's, he, 
I think they said it on the commentary, you know, you've got to protect these riders from themselves sometimes as well, because he's of not gonna, he's not going to pull over and stop, is he? So, no. you know, but that, but that if is... his helmet came off, he'd still ride. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> it's, it's up to the, it's up to the organisers. And actually, um, well, actually, before I, Neil Cameron's got a question from Facebook. Actually, Pete, what was Fabio like uh, post-race? What, what's he said? Because uh, he looks, he's not going to admit to huge wrongdoing. I, he feels like he's, you know, already, he's had the penalty and he feels like that's the case in point. But as you say, it's not just the zip. It was also the fact that he chucked the thing onto the uh, the chest plate, onto the circuit. So dangerous. Yeah, yeah. It was a very dejected Fabio after the race. Um, you know, he didn't want to speak, as they never do with safety issues. If there's, you know, any problems with things like brakes, of course, that's the classic one on bikes. You never get, you know, a clear answer as to what went wrong, whether, you know, the brakes failed or they weren't installed right. And it's a bit like that with any safety equipment. And so he just said he didn't know. He just said the leather suddenly opened at turn one. And he couldn't close them again. That was, and that's it. And that it's being looked at. He didn't mention anything about the chest protector. Mm. Um, but clearly, the riders that finished on the podium all sort of agreed, look, you know, in that situation, you should get a black flag. It's kind of a bit like having a smoking engine, isn't it? You would get a black and orange flag. Um, and yeah, exactly that's, as that's you, the safety for everyone else, though, isn't it? The black and orange flag is the safety for everyone else. Whereas this, you know, really yeah, was about yeah, the kind of, yeah, the rider from himself. Yeah. Yeah, unless you get oil on your own wheel. But yeah, and um, yeah, they were saying, look, he should have had a black flag. Everyone seemed to agree that Fabio, of course, didn't agree. He said, well, hang on, I've already got a penalty. He wasn't too happy with the penalty that, that Keith's just been talking about for straight lining the chicane. <laughs> I don't think he should have been given another penalty at the end. of If, they, if they'd stacked another one on top of him, I'd be 100% on Fabio's side. They've given him a penalty. That's it. It was the, it was a race direction that, or stewards or whoever was dealing with it at the end of the day didn't give him a penalty for having his, his zip undone. That's when they should have done. They shan't, Retrospective penalty for that would be unfair, in my view. They've made the cock up. They didn't black flag him when they should have done. Mm. Even Casey Stoner's on the case with this. Casey Stoner, I mean, like, he, he disturbed his fishing, I think, just to, just, to, just to come and have a comment on it as well. I mean, there isn't a rider, I don't think, that wouldn't agree with the fact he should have been black flagged. The fact that he wasn't black flagged, surely, I would, if they gave a retrospective penalty for that, then they should be yeah, yeah, you, you can't, yeah, you can't. It, exactly as you say i mean it, it a bit like with a bike problem if you make it to the end of the race and as fabio said look the race is finished it finished safely for everyone you can't you know add something now but it was interesting you're talking about you know shortcutting the the turn one and, and jack miller said look the moment i saw him do that i knew he was going to get a penalty that's why i didn't overtake i just sat behind him made sure i finished you know close enough for that three second penalty looked up at the scoring tower there I was in third. Thank you very much. So he, he said, "Look, everyone knows you've got to you've got to give up the ground if you if you run on there. It's shortcutting, and you know Fabio didn't." It, now it, call it Jack. <laughs> <laughs> it, what what you've underlined there is how confusing this all is. And Neil Cameron on Facebook has asked, and I I don't know if you will be able to answer this, but he says, "Why have race stewards' decisions become so confusing and seemingly inconsistent again after a period where they'd seemingly become transparent and consistent? The exceeding track limits seemingly differing between classes at Mugello, and then the opaqueness of Fabio's three second one at uh, Montemello being two that spring to." Neil's mind personally so so what what do you think has has it gone from being consistent and to suddenly you know what's happening this year especially when you added the whole track limit saga as well I've been arguing about this for ages and I speak quite often with some of the top men down at uh, the track still obviously only on the phone nowadays but fact is it's not transparent enough for me I think what happens is is they make decisions great give us the reasons where is the where is the trail to get to that decision. Why does somebody get uh, a, a bigger penalty than someone else for what seems like on the day something similar? It's not cumulative. It's not like they, they stack them up because they don't like a rider or a team or something like that. It, it is quite clear in their minds where they're going to. Again, to mention Simon Crayfire, who I respect hugely, um, Simon's tried to get the answer to this quite often, and he's on site, so you can imagine. And when they explain, when Freddie or somebody like, I was supposed to meet with Freddie in the next couple of weeks, but he's not coming to London now, he... He, if I can persuade him, he'll come on this podcast with us and, and talk us through it when we get into the break a little bit later on. So you can all look forward to that back at home. And I can tell you, Freddie can speak for America in detail about every minute thing that he's ever done. So God help us when we get into this. Um, but the fact is, is they will have a very clear way of thinking. These people are not idiots. You know, Freddie Spencer is not an idiot. He knows 
what his reasoning is behind each and everything that he sanctions when it comes to a rider. It's just not clear to the rest of us. And that's what makes the sport look silly. You know, if you're not going to get a transparent, okay, send us a sheet of paper. When you, when you get the, I hate it when you get that, that sheet that comes, Pete, you get one as well, I'm sure, that gives you the penalty on it. Um, riding beyond, I can't even think of the bloody silly phraseology. I mean, they've got, it's like they've got a dictionary with four words in it. That's all they can use to actually explain something. When what they should do is take the, take the time to give you the data to give the, the media the data so we can put it out there and, and everybody can see clearly. Confusion is, is your enemy when, you're, when you've got a sport like this. When, when the gentleman who's, who's written into you there, Harry, I mean, to not be able to explain it clearly to him, I feel like I've failed. But you can't, you can't get the detailed information. They have everything they need. They have data from the teams. They have more cameras than we see. They've got access to those cameras from every single angle as well. They have everything they need to put these penalties out. But what they don't do is put out the clarity that we all need and deserve, bearing in mind, everybody watching this is paying one way or another. You know, it's a, it's a service to the fans as much as it is. Um, we need that clarity and we don't get it, I don't think. Yeah, well, I don't think that's the first or the last time we'll be talking about about this. Like, uh, um, so uh, I will move it on there because uh, thank you, Neil, for sending in the question there. Um, but uh, it's a it's a very complicated subject, not just in MotoGP but across all motorsport, it seems. But uh, while we're sort of on Corsarara and, and Yamaha, Vinales, uh, let's touch on him because that was, uh, if I look at my piece of paper, that was Keith's prediction for this weekend. And uh, well, I mean, you had you could have be forgiven because you know he's had a bit of a, a rough run of it when especially when you compare it to his teammate he changed his crew chief going into this weekend uh, but he said that wasn't actually his decision that was the team's how big yeah. of a, how big of a change is that and did, did you he finished sixth in the end so we didn't re- i didn't feel like we really well, saw we, a lot we can go back a bit further can't we what happened to roman Ficada? i mean he's got rid of esteban garcia now but um yeah it's all very well firing your crew chief out there because it isn't actually happening for you but from the things I see, it, it looks more like it's down to Maverick than it is down to, you know, the team have took it on the nose regarding the, you know, Garcia, they're moving him across. They've said it was their decision, but nah. <laughs> yeah, they, they might have been the people that pulled the trigger to get rid of the guy, but at the end of the day, Silvano Gabacera is a really, really good Q chief, crew chief. Um, but is it going to fix Maverick Vinales' problems? No, I can't, I can't see that. I mean, I think Vinales is a fantastic rider, but he's flawed. And he he's one of them guys that he's going to pull it out the bag. He's going to he's going to give us another win. I mean, we've had one this year, but he's going to give us another win, that is for sure. I thought he might have the bike and and, and the track for him this weekend. That's why I went with him. I, I like a bit left of field. I like someone like him if he can come back and do it. But he's disappointing. Every racetrack, he's disappointing. I mean, he had a bit of pace late race, again, to bring him to, you know, he was closing them down, closing them down. But you never have confidence with him, do you, that he's going to be able to pull it out of the bag, that he's going to do something spectacular. Quattararo you do, Zarco you do, you know, just about everybody else, I've got to say, that's around him. That, but when you watch him on track, I don't know whether you were like this, Pete, when you watched him, but he just looked like he, he lacked that that bite, that bit of extra you need. He's got lovely smooth lines when he's on his own and he closes them down, but he just looks like he's on the brakes a little bit early. I know Mir, you know, obviously he's very, very good on the brakes and Suzuki's very stable in the middle of the corners and I'm not riding the bike, so please don't take it as a personal criticism of him because I can't. It's only the observation I'm making is that he looks a little shy and and that it shouldn't be like that. Yeah, he should be when he's on top of Mir, he should just stuff it up the inside of him and be done with it. It's it's kind of one of them ones where he just seems to be just lacking that bit of bite. It does seem that he just gets unsettled, doesn't it? I mean, we were talking about the example of Marquez following him for a toe and, and how it sort of ruffled him at Magello. And that, that does seem to be it because you know, Maverick is incredibly talented. He's one of the few riders that I think Marquez certainly in the past feared. You know, Marquez thought if he gets going, because he'd raced him, hadn't he, when they were, when they were young, and he, he knew how good, how talented, raw talent Maverick is. And he just, you know, but it, it seems like he just gets sidetracked just at that moment in when instead of putting everything together, it all just falls apart and it goes the wrong way. And, and 
I wonder how much he misses that pastoral care he had at Suzuki, that atmosphere that he had at Suzuki. I think the really big deal for him to change to Yamaha. Yamaha looked like the right deal for everybody. I don't think retrospectively you can even disagree with the deal that he did when he went to Yamaha, but he loved it at Suzuki. They loved him. He, he loved them. And it worked really, really, really well. And, it, and of course, then Suzuki came, are coming good. Um, and he'd have been well-placed. And it was the, it's the type of motorcycle that would suit him as well. You know, it's, it's, that, that's a, mind you, I would have said the Yamaha was as well, personally. But, but the Suzuki has come, come into the zone. That, and I, all of this stuff, I bet, fiddles with his head. You know, I think Maverick's one of them guys that's, that's got just a, you know, volumes of stuff going on in his bonds all the time instead of just gritting his teeth and getting on with it sometimes, perhaps. And, and of course, this year, Fabio's come in, hasn't he, as, as the new guy and won three races. And that, it's, 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 it's changed the whole dynamic within the team. You know, last year obviously was a disaster year for the factory team, but Maverick was the top guy, clearly, wasn't he? He still had that on his side. But this year, it's hang on a minute, this new guy's come in and, and it's, you know, he's, he's now sort of rabbit in the headlights a bit and, and trying to sort himself out. But yeah, time's running out, isn't it, for this year? Plus, we don't know really. Again, it, it feeds back into what we were talking about just a, a few minutes ago with Yamaha not really performing here like we thought they were going to do today. I think that's, you know, Morbidelli, I can't even remember speaking about him during the course of the entire race. You know, Morbidelli was way out of it when you wouldn't have expected him to be. Rossi fell down, mm. turned 10. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not been a great weekend for Yamaha, really. You know, you would have expected a full Yamaha podium at the end of the day. And we've, um, we've got KTM on top with, with, again, not the man we might have expected to be on top, but he was, um, Oliveira. We won't make that mistake again, will we? That's MotoGP. Um, <laughs> my, now, what I am annoyed at, because my, my backup was going to be Joan Zarco, who, uh, who didn't win, but he gave it a good shot. And, uh, I mean, it's surely only a matter of time. That before Zarco gets gets his win this year, and it was a great second place for the Pratt Ducati. Um, he, he seems to be getting better and better, but I mean, not like he is was bad anyway. But he's just becoming more self assured. It seems more self confident. He's just got this nice fresh contract extension as well. He's got that self confidence. But actually, Herbert on Twitter has asked, Zarco's doing brilliantly well, but will he always be the bridesmaid and never the bride? He is one of those riders. I don't think you can you can rule him out. I mean, he is actually one of those riders where I think he's so unique. I don't think you can rule him out. I mean, when you look at the devastation of KTM, the type of guy that he's completely different. I mean, I've never met anybody quite like Joanne Zarco uh, in the paddock. He's he's a unique individual. The way he goes about what he goes about is is like no one else I know. When he when he when he left KTM, he kind of said to them, look, I'm, we're not getting along as brilliant as I want. So I'll give you a, a bit of notice. Being a very polite, nice man, and they just fired him out of there. They're ruthless at KTM. Um, and I think that that – and his, his manager fell on. The, you know, they fell out as well. His personal background, lots of things changed. He lived with Fallon. He was, he was in this pressure cooker of, of management that, that, that didn't work for him. So there's a lot gone on behind the scenes with Joanne Zarco. And we're, we're only just seeing him emerge now. He's Pramac is a great team. I mean, anybody who's been in the paddock, you know, it is just the best team. I mean, Jack Miller, you know, uh, when he was at Pramac, it's party, party. Friday night karaoke. I mean, we used to go to the karaoke dudes there as well. It just, it's, it's, a fan, it's a very, very nice place to be with good people, know how to enjoy themselves, expect the most out of the rider. It seems to suit him at the moment. Um, I don't think you can write. I, no, I don't think he's always going to be the bridesmaid. I, I have a, I have a real feeling that Zarco is, is going to suddenly come, come really, really good. He's just got that feel about him. I mean, he hasn't won a race yet. He hasn't won a MotoGP race yet. But he ain't bloody far away. He had good pace at the end of that race as well. And, and Pete, he's second in the championship as well. So he, he's the one bringing the fight. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, as a satellite rider, I mean, it's a, you know, he, he's, he's on course to achieve what Morbidelli kind of achieved last year, isn't it? Which is, it's a great thing to do. You know, it's not, you can say, okay, he's got the same bike as the factory team, but you still don't have all of those engineers that the factory team has and all of that sort of thing. He's not making mistakes. And as Keith said, he's, a, he's, a, he's different to the other riders and not only in personality, also his riding style. He's also, he's a little bit like Lorenzo, I guess, in that he just, you know, he's very smooth on the bike and he, he, he never likes to force the bike. You know, he's always talking about wanting the bike to do, you know, what he wants it to do without kind of throwing it around too much. And 
So you always have to think once he gets it working in the way he wants, which is slightly different to other riders, he, you know, he really, as we're seeing now, he's really consistently quick with it. And he can be gentle on the tires and everything else. And, you know, he's doing a great job. It'd be, you know, it would be a crime if he doesn't win a race this year. And, um, you know, it'd be great for Pramac as well, which haven't won with Ducati. So, yeah, I think surely sooner rather than later he's going to do it. And, you know, he's not that far away in the championship, is he? He's 17 points. I mean, if he can just keep doing what he's doing now and and being consistent, you know, who knows where that's going to take him. Yeah, everyone, I think everyone wants a Joanne Zarco win, to be honest. And with that uh, announcement earlier this week as well, that him and uh, Jorge Martin, who returned this weekend back from injury, both uh, signing to extend with Pramac. Uh, let's briefly touch on Martin and his return. Uh, off air, I called it underwhelming. Um, perhaps that was <laughs> not quite the right word, but great to see him return from injury and be back on the grid racing where he belongs. But it crashed before the race had even started, had to start from the back came home 14th kept it on the track could we have expected much more are we how how many races can you give him to get back up to that that speed that we saw right at the start of the year i think you're being a bit tough on him at the moment it's um he took a massive clattering i mean he's come back from a from from a proper bashing um i think we need to give him a little bit more time yet before i can make any real comment on it but i mean i think that jorge martin is a uh, he's a good rider. Let's let's wait and see what happens when he gets fit again. I mean, you know, to to make comparisons, I mean, Mark Marquez, third crash in a row, third meeting that he's he's piled out of. Um, I don't, I, you know, when you're injured, rider riders know it. You know what what they're capable of. You know, as soon as they cock their leg over a bike at the beginning, you'll never ever hear it. They'll never ever tell you the truth. It's never it's never something that you put out in the public. Um, so Jorge Martin. I don't know what's creaking and what's what's not working with him just yet. And falling off on the sighting lap this morning was um, was a bit of a shame as well. So it's it's one of them ones where we've not had a clear run at it yet. Mm. Saxon Ring next round is is a go-kart track. It's horrible. Most of the riders don't like it. It's dangerous. The barriers are too close to the track in so many corners there. You've got the waterfall turn turn 11 in the Saxon Ring, So, which, which after spending how many, five, six, Seven left-handers, I think there are, actually, thinking about it. There's seven left-handers before you turn right at one of the most tricky corners anywhere on the calendar. It just drops off the edge of the earth on the right-hand side of the tyre. So, confidence-wise, the next track is going to be tricky as well. Um, kind of led into to Mark Marquez a bit there at the moment. It's quite. It's, do you find it slightly unusual, Pete, that the, the, the two so-called top men from before, Rossi and Marquez, are pushing back a bit on on their performances like i think both have said this week that that, that you know they're 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 both all right you know marcus said something this morning about you know it's his seven the first seven laps he did at a race were the best he's done this year and and rossi's saying you know it ain't all over or the effective part of but it's not all over and i'm thinking to myself hang on a minute am i watching two different riders to these two because one of them's crashing his brains out and can't ride the bike anything like he used to be able to and you can pretty much say that about rossi as well at the moment he's not He's not having anything like the Rossi kind of performance you might have expected. And I'm 100% sure that we're going to hear after the break, if not during the break, that that he's out of it for next year. I cannot see Rossi continuing. I just can't. It's, um, you know, he's not doing himself any favours. He's not doing his legacy any favours. You know, can you see him continuing? I can't. Not into next year now. I just don't. I, I mean, he's always said it's about results. And there's no results at the moment. So, you know, if we take it at face value, what he's saying, then exactly. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a way that he can continue. The difficulty then is who do you put in his place? Um, you know, it might actually be an easier decision for Rossi than, than for Yamaha, if that makes sense, that Yamaha have to find a replacement. There was a few rumours, uh, our colleague Neil Morrison was uh, saying on TV today that, that maybe Yamaha had approached Ralph Fernandez um, and been told that, uh, no, 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 he's uh, firmly and uh, options, should we say, at KTM. So, I mean, he he would have been, you know, someone who you might say, ah, okay, that, that would be an obvious swap. But who else might they put there? So, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, this is not the first time Yamaha have been behind the game in management of their riders. The times they found themselves in a situation where they don't have that ladder worked out. And we're there again now. You know, like, Rossi was going to have to roll over at some stage but they don't have any succession plan. I mean, uh, 
that, that for me is not great management. You know, you, you, KTM, yeah, of course KTM are going to hang on to Fernandez if they can. You know, they've got him blocked off already. There's no way you're going to let a talent go to another manufacturer if you're doing your job right. But it always strikes me that Yamaha haven't quite got that side of their management right. You know, we shouldn't be asking the question, where's the next Yamaha man coming from? There should be three of them already lined up. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, I, I, I think that as far as the factory team, you know, they've got Quattararo, haven't they? And there's increasing rumours that maybe, you know, Vinales could face pressure for Morbidelli for his seat in the future. The question is Patronus. You know, now Patronus, obviously, they've got a Moto3 team and a Moto2 team. They've got this obvious stepladder of riders and they've shown that they like to kind of take a gamble with young guys with, with Quattararo and Morbidelli. That's exactly what they did. And I think they, that Razlan had big hopes for, you know, Xavi Vierge and people like that and, and maybe Jake Dixon as well. But you wouldn't say at this stage that either of them have kind of are ready for MotoGP next year. So there is this, as you say, there's this, there could be this void, it looks like. If, if Rossi does call it a day, who are they going to put there? Factory Yamaha should not be relying completely on the KTM's ladder. Oh, sorry, on the um, independent team's ladder. You know, which is what they're doing. Razlan Razali and the Sepang International Circuit, they run a great setup, fantastic independent setup. You know, John McPhee, they looked at moving him up into Moto 2. Jake Dixon stayed there in the end because Jake was having a good year last year. He's not having a good year this year. You know, Radi Radi Ra. So right now, Razali's, you know, golden independent team is not looking quite so sharp. But they ended up with, with Rossi being foisted on them effectively. I always said it right from the start Poison Chalice. You've got the biggest name in the entire world that's just been put back into your independent team. And if he doesn't perform, chances are that the bike's going to get the blame. So they gave him a full factory bike, so there is no blame there right now. And then Morbidelli's nose was put out of joint. You know, yeah. they probably mired Morbidelli a little bit. He should have had a lot more, you know, a lot more full factory input, in my view. I still think that Yamaha is, is, is not managing it as well as they should do. I just, I just, that's my feeling. As they don't seem to have a, a solid plan of where the next generation of people are coming from. Um, whereas, you know, Honda put their money all over everything. KTM have, have bought up everything. Um, so, you know, it's it's a situation where, and they've aligned themselves. And, you know, Akiayo, I mean, what a great manager, what a great team that Akiayo, the Finn, runs anyway. You know, Nicky Io, his son is in there now as well. You know, they've got some brilliant people that are on that on that team and, and you know Remy Gardner and, and and Fernandez running away with it like they are at the moment a one two two weekends running a rookie that's in second place you know looking so good at the moment in that championship and they've already signed you know Remy up for the MotoGP setup next year you know it, it's it's proactive thinking and we're in that kind of business you know you need to see what's happening over the next two or three years it just strikes me that Yamaha are either very, very unlucky or they're not really thinking quite far enough into the future. Well, um, in my opinion. Just uh, forget next generation for a minute and current generation and Honda um, are having another woeful time of it uh, because yeah. we will come on towards all of that. But James has asked a really good question here. Um as we just spoke about Marquez as well, who looked to be in the fight. He was in the fight today, which was good to see until... He binned it. Uh, but James has said, after this weekend, I get the feeling Mark Marquez is pretty close to 100%. But I suspect that it's now the bike letting down the whole team. Do you feel that it's now Honda dragging all their riders down or is there something more to it still? Do you think Mark Marquez is now where he needs to be? No, Mark's still not 100% for himself. Yeah, he's, he's getting there. And I think that everybody anywhere would, would agree with that, surely. But Honda isn't a bike that you want to be on at the moment. Polis Bargro Gar- uh, crashed today. Mark crashed today. Takanakagami, you know, he was somewhere thereabouts, you know, fast in warm-up again. Best Honda was 11th. Yeah, and, and that's the, the, the situation we're in. Now, you know, Honda... Honda have been on the back foot for years. It's been Mark Marquez that's made the difference consistently over the years. It's not been about anyone. You know, they let Cal Crutzo go off and be a Yamaha tester. And that's another thing. When does he test? <laughs> Cal's on the best paid holiday I think he's ever had. 
it's a situation and that annoys me as well it's no good blocking off the likes of lorenzo last year and, and cal this year for some reason or another and you don't go bloody testing i don't get that at all anyway back to to, to marcus it's marcus that has made the difference consistently over the years you know cal has been an admirable i mean i i, I think that what we why do we always appreciate something when it's gone you know cal Cruzzo, great rider always has been you know go back to british supersport days it was something a little bit special came through world supersports you know uh, it was almost kind of not dismissed because he wasn't dismissed because you couldn't dismiss cal <laughs> ever but um his talent was kind of it almost felt to me like it was slightly downgraded sometimes you know people didn't give him the credit of what he was doing on that bike um, particularly on the Honda. I mean, the Ducati was a different matter. We won't go back there. But even then, after he decided he was going to go to LCR, he rode the Ducati really well. Cal's a trier. He's tough and he really works hard on it and he never gives up. And that's Marquez as well. But that bike seemed to have evolved all the way around Mark. And the second anyone else needed to ride it, I mean, Nakagami rode the old one pretty well. You know, I think the old chassis worked quite well as as well. And that's the other problem with with, with new factory bikes you know, you jump on a new factory bike, it's never what everything that you want it to be. I mean, they're, they're, they're always difficult. They're at the beginning of the development when a new factory bike arrives on the track. The old factory bike that you rode last year has got all the last year's data and all the knowledge that you've got to go with it. So therefore, it's an easier motorbike to ride, an easier motorbike to, to adapt to each and every track you go to because you've already got all of that information in your head or in the in the data uh, you know, machine, the uh, computer thingy, you know. <laughs> Very technical. <laughs> like I am. Um, <laughs> So it's kind of one of those situations where, I don't know, new factory bikes, they're always a bit tricky. Marquez has come back after other people have been playing with his bike since Hareth last year. Mm. You know, other people have been tweaking his motorbike since Hareth last year. You know, brother Alex has had his input into it. You know, lots of people have been, and maybe it ain't the bike that it, it was even when Mark left it. And Mark now having to adapt his slightly broken body to it as well. And he still looks a little awkward in places on it. It's tough for honda but again like i was critical of yamaha for their planning i think the same could be said of honda in their planning they had all their eggs in mark marquez's basket could is it feasible to even suggest that um marquez assuming he gets back to full fitness before the end of the season and as we've said this before loads of times we we will see him win another race this year all things being well, would he start to look about if he's not happy with that Honda? I think he'd look about. I think everybody looks about all the time. I don't think anybody never looks about. But, I think with, that, but with this Yamaha situation as well, do you think, you know, with the poor planning side of it, do you think, you know, there's going to be one eye on, well, that, that could well, be we're a only five, switch? Well, it's only five minutes ago that we were all talking about perhaps he'll switch to KTM, if you remember. Yeah. It would have been <laughs> the big buy, wouldn't it? It have been buy markers into KTM, but KTM balked at the idea because... If he, if he won on a KTM, they'd say it was Mark Marquez. If he lost on a KTM, they'd say it was a KTM bike. So it was a, yeah. a, a you know, I talked about Poison Chalice earlier on. So it was a, a tough job for KTM. So in the end, that, can you imagine the mega bucks that would have been involved in that? <laughs> he wouldn't have to do his own washing for a year or two, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's talk about the the confirmed move that is definitely on the cards that we haven't we briefly touched on. We haven't spoken about it. Remy Gardner confirmed for Tech 3 next year. So that means Petrucci and Lacuena, one of them is going to go at the very least. Um, and, well, actually, just on, on I want to touch on Lacuena briefly because actually I thought he looked like he had a decent run of it, running in the top nine this weekend before he crashed out. How how are you looking now at Petrucci and Lacuena? Who Who's going to go? Are they both going to go? What's going to happen next? And then Remy Gardner finally getting his chance, well-deserved chance as well. Pete, I don't know about you, but I think they'll be fairly relaxed regarding who they get rid of. And why make the decision early? Let them roll out a little bit longer would be my personal management side to that. I mean, let's wait and see. Why make a decision too early? They've got all these guys under contract. You know, at the end of the day, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll work out their strategy. They don't have to make a decision right now, do they? No, exactly. And just as we were talking about this kind of staircase of talent and you were saying about how well-planned KTM is, that's coming kind of at the expense of Lacona and Petrucci now, isn't it? Because for KTM, it's great. 
But for the riders, they now realize there's all these guys knocking on the door just behind them going, uh, you know, we're ready. And it looks like they will keep one of them um, at this stage. So it, it is kind of just a, a jewel for this remaining seat. I honestly don't know which one they'll keep. Um, you know, Lacona is in his second year. Petrucci is only in his first year. He's a bit bigger on the bike. It seems like KTM are kind of interested in having or trying to get their bike to work with Petrucci as a, as a slightly bigger rider because all their other guys are quite small. And I think they want to, you know, maybe that would help make the bike a bit more complete overall. Um, but I think, yeah, I think they'll wait a bit. I think probably at least until the summer break. Uh, Lacona was going well this weekend. He was he was quick again, but he, you know, it's like a lot of people, he needs the end result and that hasn't come yet. So, you know, I, I think if you were to sort of pin me down now, I would say they would probably go with Petrucci. But if Lacona puts in some good results, it, it could all change. As you say, I think they're prepared to sit back and wait a bit because it's not a big year as far as most of the, the rider contracts. Most of the, all the top guys really are, are, are you know, nailed down to at least the end of next year. So they can afford to wait, really. It's their last available seat. And, um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll get an answer during the summer break, probably. I was smiling slightly there, Harry, if you noticed that um, obviously KTM's test rider who who – really is responsible for putting a lot of, of good ideas together. You know, Danny Pedrosa is about the size of Petrucci's arm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> that KTM is being developed um, uh, pretty much by a, a fella that's style and size is um, is quite different to Danilo's. Um, and I, I think Danilo, I love Danilo Petrucci. Who doesn't love Danilo Petrucci? He's such a nice man. And he said, look, you know, if it was at, if it was at the end now, I'd be grateful for what I've had in, in MotoGP. He's a, he's a bloody super stock rider, for God's sake. He's come the, hard, the hardest of ways into MotoGP factory rides. I mean, to come from super stocks, yeah, very few people do that. Very, very few people do that. It's, the, it's, a, it's a difficult route to come. But when you're his size... You're made for Superstock, really, aren't you? <laughs> but anyway, well, we well, wish uh, him well, whatever the circumstances. We do Ikela Quona, of course, but um, I'm slightly the opposite. I think Laquona being, you know, I think maybe it will be Laquona that might come good towards the end of the year, personally. But there you go. Well, we'll have to uh, keep a watchful eye over that one. Well, it was Miguel Oliveira, though, who took the win ahead of Joanne Zarco and Jack Miller. Quartararo fell to fourth in the end, and Joanne Mir closed the top five. That was your pick, wasn't it, uh, Pete? You were Mir last week. So no points for anybody. So we all, so it's still me. I'm still the only one with zero points. But um, Fabio Quartararo has plenty of points. He sits top of the standings, 118, 17 ahead of Zarco. Uh, and Miller now moves up to third on uh, 90 points. And with the win, Miguel Oliveira works his way up to seventh currently uh, with 54 points. So uh, probably one to keep an eye on if he keeps going the way he is. Um Moto2 now, let's switch uh, to, I want to talk about that for a little bit, was one of the perhaps quieter races of the weekend, but still a few bits to pick up on for sure. Remy Gardner started on pole and managed to cross the line first as well, ahead of teammate Ralph Fernandez and Xavi Vierge took third. Remy Gardner looked cool, calm and collected yet again, second on the trots. Uh, it spiced up halfway through though, didn't it, when Fernandez managed to get the lead uh, from Gardner, but in hindsight, now again, coming back to what we were talking about in MotoGP, it looked like Remy was just happy to, to let that happen and, and again take stock. And then that brilliant dive bomb moved down into turn one, where I did not think he would get that stopped. He just looked like he had beautiful control over the bike the whole weekend. I'll tell you what, you tend to have beautiful control when you're committed to the inside line and you've got a rider on the outside. <laughs> you've got to let the brakes off and make it work. <laughs> the, worst, the worst thing you can do is um, be committed to the inside line, chicken out, and then just ram them straight in the backside. And that, uh, especially if it's your teammate. Yeah. Um, so it, it was one of them situations where yeah, it was beautiful, beautiful control but, and it looked dead clean like he meant it. But <laughs> I've got to say that uh, he had to let the brakes off to make sure that um, Rayon knew that he was there. Um, I mean... Remy rode a brilliant race, and you're right from my point of view. I think that the, the maturity that he showed, yeah, Raul, bloody fast rookie. I mean, he's really come good. There's no doubt about that. You can see that he's going to be a massive talent. But um, Remy sat back, whereas in the past, I think he might have snapped straight back at him and had another, you know, been a bit of a pushing and shoving session. But Remy sat right back, very mature ride from him, 
and he had every bit of pace that he needed. And he's increased his lead in the championship, which, of course, is um, is critical. 16 more points, I think, over Sam Lowe's, who's back in uh, fourth place still. Um, Sam actually finishing, I think, will feel like a bonus to him. It's been um, an unfortunate um, period of races for him. Seventh place won't be what he wanted, that's for sure. But he did need to finish. He desperately needed to finish with sensible points. Yeah, well, and a couple of people as well to pick up on there. Uh, Jake Dixon didn't have a, a great weekend either. Yet again, crashed in quality and the warm-up and finished 18th overall, didn't he? And uh, uh, Marco Bezzecchi was a, an interesting one, I thought, as well, because he was saying that all weekend, even after three podiums with the bounce, he felt like he's kind of nowhere. So it seems like fourth was a bit of a salvation for him in the end. But a great result as well for Xavi Vieje in third, just ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, I think Bezzecchi... Bezeki wants to win. That's all there is to it. Fourth place is he ain't on the podium. He wants to win. So that's a bad weekend for him. Um, as it is for most of these blokes, it's got to be said. <laughs> <laughs> but you can only fit three up there. Um, Unless you're Remy Gardner or Ralph Fernandez, it's a bad weekend, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, a one-two uh, for, for Aki Ayo. We mentioned him earlier on, you know, manager of, of owner of that team. Aki Ayo manages riders and ma- manages and owns that team. Um, a one-two for them, two weekends running. It does not get better than that. Mm. Uh, and actually, though, coming back, and, and Pete, you might be able to, to weigh on this as well on on the contract uh, side of things. Um, Josh on Twitter has asked. There's lots of rumours going out around again concerning the Petronas SRT team. With Jake Dixon and Raul Fernandez both being on the radar, you can understand Fernandez. Jake Dixon with his current form, though, I know he's obviously shown brilliant form in the past, but. It's just not going his way. Is there any is there any scope that that could be po- a possibility, or is that just absolute rubbish? <laughs> I mean, as as we've said, we there's going to be it looks like a space in the team. Yeah, there's yeah. a space in the team, and, and this is the, the the big question. It's it's a great ride. I mean, this is the thing. The Patronus, you know, this is a team that finished title runner up last year. This is one of the top rides in MotoGP, but there's no obvious person to, to put in there. And you would think, as Keith was saying, that they're going to go, right, we need to you know, get a young talent in here to just make sure that we have got this, this escalator of riders in case somebody tempts away Fabio you know, in a couple of years' time with a big money offer or something like that, that we have always got these other guys to fill the gap. Um, you know, I don't see at this moment exactly who they could go for that would obviously take that. I mean, you, you look to the top guys in Motor 2, Remy Gardner, already signed oh. and sealed. So he's gone. And then you, you, you know, guys like Bezeki or something like that, he's tied in with VR46. He's probably, he's got, depending on what Rossi does, he's got a, you know, a fighting chance of being in the VR46 MotoGP team next year. So, but beyond that, as we're seeing, the, 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 the success in Moto2 is kind of so, so focused within a couple of riders at the moment that there's not really any obvious choices. And you know, team managers, they don't like risk like anyone else. They want to take the obvious, you know, the guy who's dominating and, and doing fantastically. And so, the, you know, now's the time to do it. I mean, now is the time when the contracts, it's no good waiting until the end of the year when everything's signed and then being brilliant. You know, now is the time to impress people. But for me, I don't see any obvious choice at the moment. Mm. Well, not on these shores, maybe, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have, um, I'd have uh, got a signature off Garrett Gerloff by now. I'd have made sure he was um, in the running somewhere along the lines. When he came and had a little play, he rode brilliantly well. You know, the Americans, it's a big market as well. So they, they, it sort of fits in along those lines. I don't know what Garrett Gerloff's uh, contractual situation is in America, but you can be fairly sure he can be bought out of that um, should they want to. Um, I'm surprised we've not heard more about that, actually. It surprises me slightly. Um, you know, it's about marketplace as much as anything as well. I mean, Dorna are desperate to make sure we got some Brits in there. They're desperate for Americans, you know, Australia is now getting fairly well covered again. They're coming back onto to the. It's, it's about this is where the politics and the marketeering of it all comes in, isn't it? And right. and you know you've got to look at that side of it as well. It was, sometimes it's not quite as straightforward as as, as bringing someone into it. Um, we'll see. I'm sure the brains behind each and every team are working overtime at the moment to try and plug these gaps that they've got that are coming. Um, I'm sure that pretty sure in my mind that they already know what's happening with Valentino Rossi. Um, it will have had to have been discussed because Rossi is working on his own team as well. There will be people in the paddock that will have a, 
an idea, a fairly educated idea as to what's going on with Valentino Rossi for the rest of this year and next, obviously. Um, but us mere plebs will not hear about that for some considerable time. <laughs> Well, Remy Gardner leads the way for the time being. <laughs> 11 points ahead of teammate Ralph Fernandez in Moto2 with 139 to 128. Marco Bezecchi uh, is in third with 101 points. Um, Moto3 now. And in Moto3, we were treated to an amazingly close race. One of the closest Moto3 races I think we've seen in recent times. It seemed like no one wanted uh, to take the lead over the line in the last corner. But in the end, it was Sergio Garcia who took the win from Jeremy Alcova and Denis Oncu made it onto the podium after Masia was demoted for track limits, uh, something we've seen plenty of times before. Um, and he was, Oncu was incredibly emotional, wasn't he? But you really couldn't have called it even on that final lap because at one point it was Binder, Costa, Rodrigo all up front. And then suddenly Acosta's down in 13, Binder's somewhere in the middle and they end up fifth, sixth and seventh. Garcia, who won it, started 19th. What a crazy race. Well, it was crazy, but it was also a bit bloody silly, wasn't it, really, at the end of the day? I well, mean, that the final, uh, the penultimate lap coming onto the front straight when everybody's backing up in the middle of a race. I mean, hang on a second. Because um, no one wanted a lead onto, they wanted a toe onto the last lap, which gives you quite an advantage in Moto3, obviously. Um, two shocks for me. John McPhee was definitely race winning material. And I didn't really see the mistake he made. I don't understand how he ended up where he ended up, but. He's 18th in the championship now, still only on 22 points. I mean, his year is gone. Um, you talk about Patronus a lot. You know, where is he going at the end of the day? What is happening with John McPhee? You know, and the Leopards were nowhere this week either. The bikes that are always the ones to beat, you know, it, they weren't where we would have expected them to be um, all the way through it. So there's a lot of questions and not many bloody answers I've got to say. <laughs> on this one. I mean, was the Moto3 race entertaining or was it dangerous? i tell you what, it was a fine line between the two there for me on a couple of occasions. A lot of very, very close manoeuvres that, that could have had... There was one, I'm trying to think who it was now, where, where if it had actually gone wrong, if they'd been tripped up in the middle of the pack, we would have had a five, six bike pile up right in the middle of it, um, which would have been a problem as well. McPhee coming through qualifying one, fastest in warm-up, looked like the man that had got absolute control over the race, and yet again, somehow, I mean, I don't know what McPhee did in a previous life, but it obviously wasn't very good. What, yeah, Pete, what, yeah, McPhee looked like he had it sewn up from, but it was an odd place to see that bike go, it was a go off the high side there in that corner, as, as Keith says, but what's McPhee got to do? Like, what's next for him? What's the feasible option? We talk about, his, you know, potential moves up, but is that even, is that going to happen? I mean, he's been looking for this Moto2 seat, as Keith said, for a few years now. Um, I, I think that the accident on Sunday, it sounded like he thought he could break away, which no one's done in Moto3 this year, but that seems to be what he was trying to do. So he was trying to make a break, and then that was when it all went wrong. Um, as we say, the, the, the seat or the moving up option, the obvious one is to move up with Patronus, but then that comes back to, as we say, what happens with Vieja and Dixon. You know, if they move up, then there's a space. If they don't, it relies on one of them moving to another team. And or does does John has op, have options or look elsewhere from Patronus? I think he is obviously his first choice would be to stay with Patronus. Mm. John's a race winner. The trouble is, as a team manager, you look at John McPhee. He's an athlete. He does everything right. He's a great lad to have around as well. You know, the fact is McPhee is a is a Grand Prix winner, and he could win Grand Prix for the foreseeable future. It just seems to be that he's got a truckload of bad luck that he tows around with him, and I don't understand it. Um, you know, it, I wasn't really joking when I said what was he done badly in a bad in a, in a previous life because it, you know certainly the the penalties don't seem to fit any kind of crime that he's done that I've seen anyway. I mean, McPhee looks like he could win a race quite easily any day. It's just one of the, um, as a manager, you'd be reluctant to sort of just cast that kind of talent adrift, mind you. Having said that, we have seen great talents cut adrift in the past, particularly in the Moto3 class. Moto3, there's nowhere to go. You know, there aren't any other classes around the world to, that you're going to get involved in as a Moto3 rider. You've got to move up. You've got to be in Moto2 Moto and move on to Moto GP or from Moto3 into World Supersport or into World Superbike. You've got to move up. You can't continue riding a little bike. Mm. Um and we don't know how good John McPhee will be on a bigger bike yet. That's the risk. You move him up, but we don't know whether he is going to be able to be a big bike rider. Now, people like Remy Gardner, 
all along, Wayne has always said to me, his dad has always said to me, you want to see him on a big bike, the way he drifts it, the way he uses the power. Sure enough, you know, that's what it looks like. He signed up now for MotoGP. We can expect great things from Remy Gardner. <laughs> I don't know if it's genetics or what, but, you know, sometimes some riders, when they get on a bigger bike, go even better. Um, Quadraro is a, is a good example of that as well. You know, it's a situation where I can't see the same thing from John. I can't see him stepping up to a Moto2 bike and in my head, and, and I suspect that, that there are a lot of other people that are thinking the same thing. Yeah, we could put him on a Moto2 bike, but what if he's an absolute disaster? You know, we've wasted a year. It, it's it's a real tricky one with John. He's got mega talent. He's a race winner all day long in Moto3 if things go right, if he is, the luck is on his side. And I just feel sometimes that I don't really believe in luck that much, I must say, but I do when it comes to John McPhee to a certain extent. He is unlucky. Sometimes he makes his own bad luck by qualifying not particularly well, so he sticks himself in a risky position. But, but you know, he's fast. He should be winning races. He should, he should have won the World Championship this year. At the beginning of the year, I would have said another year with Patronus, with the way it was going at the end of last year, he was one of the men that you would have a little bit of money on for winning the world title. And he finds himself 18th on only 22 points compared with the 120 of Pedro Acosta. Brand spanking new 16-year-old come 17-year-old now. Um Who's, who's running away with it at the front, albeit 13 points less than he had lead going into this round. Well, that's the, is that uh, McPhee old news now, surely? I'll tell you what, that that's harsh, Harry, but I absolutely understand where you're coming from with that one. Um, it's almost like we've heard it all before, and it's a question of whether everyone in management has moved on with that frame of mind as well, and that's what's going to be the downfall of John McPhee. He's a great rider, He's a Grand Prix winner. He can win more Grand Prix. But will, will he be given the opportunity moving forward to do that? That's going to be the big question. Um, the other problem, of course, in Moto3 is you don't earn big bucks. It's not a class where you earn massive money. Um, and, and, you know, McPhee is whatever he is now, 28 or something, getting on for 28, isn't he? Um you know, he's got a lot of life left in him yet. And what do you do after Moto3? You know, I suppose we should go and have a word with Efren Vasquez or somebody to see what happened to him. You know, when Efren Vasquez was a, a man at the front of the Moto3 field for, for some time, and, and yet, you know, he got cast off uh, fairly swiftly when he got to that cut-off age of 28. I mean, if you remember, Efren Vasquez and, and Jack Miller were at it every single place you went to. What did Jack Miller call him? T-Rex. Plenty of bite, but short arms. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason for that was, was Efren Vasquez wasn't as good on the, because he was short armed, all his weight was over the front all the time and the back was in the air. So he used to call him T-Rex. <laughs> I love Miller. <laughs> Plenty of bite, but short arms. So he couldn't break as well as everyone else in the breaking area. <laughs> that it, well, actually, you bring that up quite aptly, and perhaps a final word on McPhee as well, because another thing that's going to be—that's all—he's not—he's not an idiot. That's all going to be going around in his mind as well. He's going to be thinking these exact same things while also having to deliver on track as well. Um, but it's also uh, the, the factor in moving up through the ranks is surely a, a marketability side of it as well, because you know these riders—do they do, are they going to want a twenty-eight going on twenty-nine-year-old, someone who perhaps doesn't always always come across? the happiest perhaps in interviews and things like that you know that all has a knock-on effect doesn't it we see it up and down sport overall you know so that that's surely going to be a factor as well I don't know how you see it I think that if you were to look at something positive at the moment for John it's to say that contracts for Moto2 get decided a lot later than MotoGP so you know the title I mean, as Keith was saying, this year, I mean, the luck has been unbelievable. I mean, you just, I've never known anyone have such being taken out by other riders, falling up, you know, unbelievable. But if there is anything to say, it's that, look, there's a lot of Moto2 seats for next year that are not decided yet. And you've got time to turn this around, you know, and, and you've just got to focus on that and, and take it race by race. And really, that's what he's got to go for. Um, as, you, as you're saying, there's all these other factors the main one, though, is that if you win, if you win, everyone loves you, don't they? And so that's what he's got to do, you know. And if you can't win, then you can try and play on other aspects of your, you know, oh, but look at me, I'm really marketable and everything else. But if you can win, no one will care. Yeah. So for John, I think that's what he's just got to keep his, you know, keep his focus on and 
and just keep reminding yourself it's not too late to to turn this season around. Maybe, of course, the title is looking unrealistic, but you can still have a great year. You can still kind of secure a ride next year in Moto2, we would imagine, is where he wants to be. Mm. Fingers crossed. I don't know what side of the bed I woke up on today, but I'd be very harsh. Haven't I? Um, but it is Pedro Acosta uh, who does hold on to that championship lead with 120 points in Moto3. Sergio Garcia in second with 81 points and Massey a third with 72 points. And as we said, McPhee with it all to do down in 18th with just 22 points to his name at the moment. Well, action uh, as ever in MotoGP across the classes. It never fails to disappoint. Um, no insider's guide or predictions uh, despite Keith's avid preparation. Very impressed by it. He's even printed a map out. But Keith, you're going to have to hold on to it for next week because that's when we do it all over again. We'll have it all then because we've also got to do the predictions as well because currently uh, it, I'm still on zero and you two are both on one. So that does also mean I get first dips again as well. Um, so we'll do it all again next week, I promise, because we will then have a proper look forward to the next round in Germany for round eight on the 20th of June. So one week off for racing, uh, but we will be back before then uh, to preview it all. Keith, Pete. Thank you as ever for being alongside me and thank you as well for joining us. Do make sure you leave us a review or a comment uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Get in touch as well. We love hearing from you and your questions. Send them to me and I'll put them across to the guys uh, and uh, we'll get them answered for you as best we can. But in the meantime, keep up to date with all the latest on Crash.net and we'll see you for the next one. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.